The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 15, where we're going to be today, starting a new series called The Dearest Place. Now, as I mentioned, the book of Acts, we looked at the power of God unleashed through the church, but that raises a question that the book of Acts didn't really answer, and that is, what the heck is a church? (laughs) Right? Why do churches exist? What do we do? What are we called to be as churches? And what do we do as churches? And so we're going to spend the next six weeks or so uh, looking at the church. And uh, because I, my heritage is Baptist, I'm a fan of alliteration. And so uh, all of our topics are going to start with the letter P. And here's how it'll go. Uh, we got the purpose of the church. That's today. The power of the church. The practice of the church. What are we supposed to be doing? The presence of the church in the world. The persistence of the church. And then finally, Uh, the sixth week, we'll look at the promise uh, that God gives his church. And so um, I hope that you'll find this series encouraging. Now, we named this series The Dearest Place. Uh, That is a line that comes from a quote from a a sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in England in the 1800s. And I'm going to read his entire quote in a little while. uh, But this one line sticks out to me. He says, um, still imperfect as it is, The church is the dearest place on earth to us, to those who are followers of Jesus. And so, um, ironically, the the church is not a place, of course, it's a people. Uh, And so we are a called out people. The the Bible, uh, the New Testament in particular, the word that's used for church is is, um, ecclesia, which means called out assembly or congregation. And so today I want to look at the purpose of the church. Uh, It's going to take me a minute to set this up. As I was studying and preparing and reading, I came across this little prayer uh, by the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans that really it struck me. And so um, I started digging into it. And what I found in it is the purpose of the church. But it's going to take a little while to get there. And I'm going to have, uh, it's going to feel a little luxury at first as I give us context. But we're going to be in the first seven verses of the book of Romans uh, chapter 15. So If you have your Bible, uh, you can follow along as I read the text here. Romans 15, starting in verse 1, says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now here at Missio, when I read the passage, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and then you can say, thanks be to God. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be your children, uh, grateful to be called the children of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We cling to Jesus with all that we have, and we cling to him alone, knowing that our identity is found in Christ. 
We are beloved. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are yours in Christ. Lord, I pray today that as we talk about your church, as we talk about the purpose of your church, that the saints would be encouraged. I pray that uh, those who may not um, have crossed the threshold of faith yet and are kind of kicking the tires on what, what Christianity even is, what it means to be part of a church, would, would find encouragement and hope today and might cross that threshold. And for all of us, Lord, that we would give you glory and that you would give us joy. And so we ask for these blessings in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and give you my points, all three of them. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to give them to you now because in the nine, I forgot them all. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give them to you now, and that way if I forget to revisit them, you'll still have them. Uh, the three things I want to point your attention to in this text are our great calling. Okay, that'll be number one. Jesus' great example. And then finally, we'll look at God's great glory. Okay, so our great calling, Jesus' great example and then God's great glory. Let's look at the first thing here, our great calling. Now, uh, if you were raised in church, you may be familiar with catechism. Catechism just means instruction or teaching. Uh, more traditional churches had catechisms. Uh, you might have gone through confirmation. And so a catechism is, is intended for children and also for young new believers to help you understand the foundational truths of Christianity, okay? Now, if you grew up in a more reformed context, you may have heard of things like the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, that's more uh, from the, the Lutherans, uh, 1530s, I want to say. Uh, if you come from Presbyterian background, you might be familiar with the Westminster Catechism uh, or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, those confessions of faith. Uh, uh, or Baptists have the London Baptist Confession. These are all catechisms, in a sense, meant to help instruct in the teachings uh, of Christianity. In the Westminster Catechism, it starts with this question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of mankind? And all my Presbyterians said... To glorify God and to enjoy him forever, okay? You were catechized. <laughs> the chief end, the purpose of mankind is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, to glorify means, gl glory in the Bible means weight or significance, okay? So the purpose of mankind is that God would be the weightiest, most significant thing in our lives. And our lives are centered around the glory, the weight, the significance of God, Okay, so uh, passages like 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 31, which says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, after Paul's great uh, uh, explanation of the beauty and power of God, he says, from him and through him and to him are all things, to him, to God be glory forever and ever. So the purpose of man, the purpose of each person on this earth is to give God glory, to 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 have our lives centered around him, that he is the most weighty, significant thing in our lives. Okay, make sense? Okay, so if that's true of man, it would follow that the chief end of the church, the chief end of the people of God would also be the glory of God, right? That if, if man's end is to glorify God, then our end together as the people of God should also be to glorify God. And I think of passages like Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 3, at the end, verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or even imagine, according to the power of God at work in us, to him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. So our chief end, our purpose is to glorify God together. And that's actually what Paul is praying for here. If you see verses five and six, look at verses five and six again with me. Paul prays, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice, what? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For what reason? For the glory of God. This is what Paul is praying for, that the church together would, with one voice, glorify God, that we would welcome one another for the glory of God. But here's the reality. If this is Paul's prayer for the church, what does that tell us? That it's not happening. He's asking God to do this in the church because it's not actually happening in this church. The church at Rome is like every other church, any other church. It had its issues. It had problems. You know why? Because it's made up of a bunch of sinners. <laughs> and we sin against God and against each other. And so this church had its issues. What was the issue at the church at Rome? Okay, this is where I need to just give you some context. So it's going to be a little luxury, but let me do this so that it makes sense for us. The church at Rome was made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Okay? The issue they had was over how to prepare food which sounds ridiculous and silly, but I have seen churches divided over lesser things. <laughs> I've seen churches split over the carpet color. I've seen churches split over Sunday school. I've seen churches split over whether to pave the parking lot, okay? Uh, this is what happens sometimes, right? Is that churches divide over stupid stuff. So you think, well, why are they dividing over how to prepare food? The Jewish people who became Christians had this whole line of Jewish tradition. God had given them dietary laws and restrictions so that they would stand out as the people of God. They would be distinct from the people of God. And so they couldn't eat certain things and they had to prepare their food in a certain way. And that made them stand out, made them unique and distinct from everyone else in the world. The Gentile believers did not have that background. They did not have all that baggage of the law and the dietary restrictions. And so these two groups could not agree on how to go forward, on how to prepare their food. A similar issue arises in the church at Corinth, but this time the roles are reversed. So in the case of Rome, Paul actually says that those Jewish believers are weak, weak in the faith, that they do not know how to properly apply the gospel into their lives, and so they are putting up these restrictions, they're holding on to restrictions that they don't need to because they're actually free in Christ, and that the Gentile believers are the strong ones. They're the strong in faith because they're not bound by that same baggage. But in Corinth, it's opposite. In the church at Corinth, the Gentile believers were the weak ones. You see, in, in Corinth, uh, all the meat had been dedicated to some god or another, to some idol. And the, so the Gentile believers thought, well, we can't eat meat because these were all dedicated to idols and we don't want to do that. And so they put those bounds around themselves. And Paul actually says to the Gentile believers, you are weak in the faith. And it's the Jewish believers who are actually strong in the faith in Corinth. Now, why do I give you all that context? Here's what that tells me. Any church in any age can divide over non-essential secondary issues to our shame, okay? And um, if you have been paying attention at all in the last two or so years, we have seen the church, the Christian church, divide 
enormously over secondary non-essential issues to our shame. Okay, whether it's politics or masks, how we deal with COVID, all that stuff. It's brought division, right, into churches over all this ridiculous stuff that doesn't really matter in the end because it's not having to do with Jesus. So that tells me that in any church, there are strong in the faith. There are those who are more mature, who are okay with ambiguity and all the gray areas that this life brings. And they know how to navigate with wisdom because they're identity is in Christ, and they know how to apply the gospel to their lives. And in every church, there are also the weak who do not have that same freedom. They do not know how to quite apply the gospel, and they live very black and white, very right and wrong, with a lot of lists and rules and parameters to sort of protect themselves from anything that might not be good, okay? Every church has the strong and the weak. You would imagine that Paul here would address the weak and would say things like, hey, grow up. You're free. Be free. But that's not the problem in the church of Rome, is it? The problem is not with the weak here. It's actually with the strong. Look at verse 1 again. We who are strong in the faith have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So what's happening in the church at Rome is that the strong are not bearing with the weak as they are called to do. Um, To bear with means to come up under, to shoulder. Um, I think of Galatians chapter 6 when Paul says to the Galatian church that they are to bear one another's burdens. Remember that? Okay. Well, how do you bear a burden? Let's let's just consider that a burden is moving a couch up a flight of stairs. (laughs) Okay. If you are going to help your neighbor move a couch up a flight of stairs, have you borne any of their burden if you have not touched that couch? No. You're a bystander, an observer, and kind of a jerk. So the only way for you to bear their burden is for you to get up under that couch with them and help them carry it up the stairs. Okay? We get up under, we shoulder, we take responsibility for, we take some of the load off of them, and that's how we bear one, another, one another's burdens. In a similar way, to bear with the weak doesn't just mean to tolerate them, doesn't just mean to sort of roll your eyes and go, oh, weakness, right? Um, as so many of us are prone to do, it means, actually, he says, here in the ESV, it says, bear with the failings of the weak, but the literal translation is the weaknesses of the weak. So we are called, those who are strong in faith, who are more mature, who are okay with ambiguity and gray, we are to bear with the weaknesses of those who are weaker in the faith in order to seek their good, not our own, in order to build them up. That's what he says there in verse two, which means you can't just be looking out for number one, but we have a responsibility towards one another to seek their good, even at the expense of our own, right? Does it cost you something to help someone move a couch up a flight of stairs? Yeah, it might cost you your back, you know? Like it's not, you're bearing some of that load, some of that weight, and there's a cost to it. And so his call to us here is to bear with those who are weak, to to take responsibility for them, for their good, uh, and to build them up. Now, some of you might be asking the question, okay, but who's my neighbor really? 
And I hope you're not asking that question because that question was asked of Jesus, wasn't he? Wasn't it? Um, in the gospel, I believe, of Mark, and they say to Jesus, well, who is our neighbor? And he tells this story about this Samaritan, right? There's this, um, the good Samaritan. Here's, here's a man laying in the road, and he's injured and hurt, and the religious people all pass him by. Well, we got stuff to do. We can't be unclean. We got to do this. We got to do that. And it was the Samaritan, the people that the Jews looked on with contempt, who actually stopped and helped and cared for. And Jesus said, which one's more righteous? And the religious people had to say through gritted teeth, uh, the Samaritan, right? Because he was pointing out that your neighbor is anyone whom God crosses your path with. We don't get to pick and choose who our neighbors are, right? It's anyone that God crosses our path with. People who don't trust in Christ are your neighbor. People who say they trust in Christ, but they're wrong about Jesus are your neighbor. People who are immature in their faith are your neighbor. People who continue to get caught up in foolish behavior and they claim the name of Christ are your neighbor. People who don't know any better are our neighbor. And we are called to bear with their weaknesses. Um, you might ask how, how you do that, okay? Um, so I'm giving you one little slice of Romans 15, but this, this contention between the church at Rome uh, carries on for multiple chapters. And I don't, we don't have time to go through all of it. So I want to point you to a, a, a verse where Paul explains how you do this. How do we, what does it look like to bear with our neighbor? Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Really briefly, what does Paul say? As for the one who is weak in faith, what are we to do? Welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. Don't invite him over so you can debate him about why he's wrong. <laughs> okay? Some of you just canceled plans. Um, <laughs> as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome her. What does that mean? The word here for welcome means to take to oneself, to come alongside of. So this is the opposite of aloofness. This is the opposite of being cold or indifferent to them. This is the opposite of being withdrawn. He says, no, welcome them. Receive those kinds of people into your life, into your heart, into your calendar, into your home. Receive them, warmly welcome them, which means, okay, Back to my first point, our high calling, our great calling, you and I have a great high calling to glorify God. That means that we are to imperfectly, but visibly, tangibly, display something of the glory and the mercy of God to the world, which means we cannot settle for self-absorption or for arrogance or judgment or that cold indifference that comes so naturally to so many of us when we look at the weak and we have disdain for their weakness. We have a great high calling to, to glorify God, to demonstrate to the world His glory. And we do that by coming alongside of and welcoming the weak. Now, does that sound hard to any of us? It does to me. What do you mean, welcome the weak? They're weak. 
<laughs> I feel strong. I don't need, you know, maybe their weakness is going to rub off on me. I, I like to be around people who are like me, who are strong like me, who think the way I think, who believe what I believe. How on earth do we become this kind of people? Where do we get the power to live like this, where we welcome, where we come alongside of, where we bear up under the weaknesses of those who we disagree with, those who are weak? Um, Notice what Paul does not say. Now, I pointed you to chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, welcome him. But then look at chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So notice he doesn't just say, hey, welcome people. Neither does he say, hey, just welcome people like Jesus did, because that doesn't go far enough. That doesn't go deep enough. He makes it personal. He says, you are to welcome people as Christ has welcomed you, which means that Paul has in mind as he's writing this letter to the, to the church at Rome of a one commentator called it a living memory, a tangible experience of, of Christ's welcome to us. Do you remember that? Do you remember what it was like to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, welcomed into the family of God? Like, I, I know some of you were like born on the altar, you know, and sang in the choir before you could speak in church. And so you may not, I, I talk a lot here about um, coming to faith sometimes for some people is a light switch, right? It's dark and then boom, it's floodlights and you're like, oh, I believe. And then for many other people, it's a dimmer switch, right? So just over time, slowly, right? Things get less gray, more colorful. And all of a sudden you look around one day and you're like, I think I'm a Christian, <laughs> right? I don't know when this happened, but I love Jesus. And so uh, so you may not have a moment in time when you remember I was dead and now I'm alive, I was lost and now I'm saved and I'm found, but do you remember the first time you realized I feel forgiven? I feel accepted by God. I, rem- I, I have a a living memory of Jesus saying to me, welcome into my family. That moment you realized, you mean the God that I have ignored and rejected and run away from and kind of threw my finger up at and went the other way, my whole entire life has chased me down and said, come into my family? This, This tangible experience of Christ's welcome to us He goes on in in verse 3 to sort of expound on that. For Christ, verse 3, did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting here from Psalm chapter 69, which is a a, a great prophetic psalm about the passion of Christ, his, his crucifixion, his death for sinners. So he says here, Jesus did not come looking out for number one. Jesus did not think, well, what's best for me? He came saying, Father, what's best for you? 
what's best for your people. His aim was to glorify the Father by serving and saving us. So Christ left the beauty and glory of heaven, descended to the earth, took on human flesh and blood, lived a life of suffering and rejection and oppression, but without sin, tempted in every way that you and I are to be arrogant, to be prideful, to be judgmental, to be self-absorbed, and he never, he never sinned in those ways. He never gave himself to the things that we give ourselves to. And then Christ, as it were, stood between us and our sin, that he, he bore reproach in our place. He, he interceded for his own enemies. He came, uh, I was talking to a brother earlier, and he, and he was reminding me of, of Psalm 23, which says that um, God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so often we, we think of that as like, God's on my side and he prepares a table like a feast for me while my enemies are looking on. But I was reminded um, that we were the enemies of God. And Christ prepared a table. God prepared a table for his enemies. Christ was the feast. He laid his own son on the altar so that his enemies could become his children. And so, so Christ comes and he, he bears our reproach. He stands in our place. He's an ally to his own enemies. Um, Romans 5 talks about how um, while we were weak, at just the right time, Christ died for us. Jesus, the strong one, became weak in our place so that we who were weak and frail and sinful could be welcomed in and made strong by his grace alone. He bore our reproach. He was our substitute. So we are welcomed in and made strong by his grace. And so you and I are received into the very family of God. Not by works, not by merit, right? He's not, he's not looking for gold stars up in this thing, right? He's not looking down going seven out of ten, uh, right? No, we're all big fat zeros. And he looks down and he says, come. With empty hands, we receive by faith the finished work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for us. And when we receive that gift by faith, we are welcomed into the family, we are made new, and, and we become, over time, welcomers because we have experienced the welcome of Christ. See, because the scriptures remind us that's what he talks about in verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we, you and I, we read the Scriptures. He's speaking here primarily Old Testament, but you and I now have the New Testament to add to the Old Testament. We have both Testaments. And when we read the Scriptures, we are reminded of the beauty of God. We're reminded of the glory of God. We're reminded of the character and the nature of God. We're reminded of the grace of Jesus Christ to sinners. And it's his mercy that encourages us. And it's his 
It's his love that sustains us and gives us endurance, and we become welcomers. And you might think to yourself, well, okay, but who cares? Like, why does that even matter? And I'm telling you, it matters. You know why? Because God's, we, okay, we saw this video on church planting, and the church is God's plan A for the world, and, and I believe all of that stuff wholeheartedly. But you have to understand this. The kingdom of God has expanded and grown over the last 2,000 years, and it has not been primarily because of super gifted evangelists. Okay? God bless the Billy Grahams of the world. But for every Billy Graham, Jesus has about another 1,000 knuckleheads like you and me. Okay? For every Apostle Paul, he had 12 other disciples that couldn't get out of their own way. And yet the kingdom of God has expanded through us infinitely more than it ever did through Paul or through Billy Graham. And so you and I have to realize, for, for every church planter, there is a core group of everyday ordinary people like you and me who come alongside that church planter who, who, who are used by God to help expand the kingdom of God. Despite what we saw in the book of Acts, the church in every age has exactly what you and I have available to us right now. You know what that is? The word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and people with an experience of the welcome of Jesus. And that is how the kingdom of God has expanded. People who, by God's grace, empowered by God's spirit, encouraged by God's word, open our lives, open our hearts, open our calendars, open our homes for the good of others even others we disagree with, and ultimately for the glory of God. And so we see in Jesus not just a great example, but a great Savior, and one who transforms our hearts and makes us into welcomers because we've experienced his welcome. You guys with me so far? I was a little reluctant. <laughs> Are you with me? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I hope you're encouraged. I hope you, I hope you will leave encouraged. So that brings us back to the ultimate purpose for which we live, which is the glory of God. Look again with me at verses 5 and 6. Paul's prayer, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Two times in that prayer, he says, for the glory of God, for the glory of God. That's, what this, that's where this whole thing is going. This is Paul's prayer for the church of Rome and for our church, for every church, that together with one voice we would glorify God that we would welcome one another for the glory of God. And he uses in verse 5 this word harmony, that we would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ. And I love that language. I'm not, I don't fancy myself a musician, but I know a little bit about music. And I know you've got melody and you've got harmony, okay? Melody, as far as I know, is like individual notes that kind of make up the line of a song. And then harmony are complementary notes that go kind of layered on top of that that make it sound more full, more beautiful. Is that correct, musicians? Pretty kind of. Okay, sure. Good enough to get by. Okay, so think about a chord. A chord, you have um, 
like let's say like a C chord on a piano. I wish I'm not going to touch it. I want to. <laughs> I don't need to do it. You got a C, you got an E, you got a G. Yes, that makes a C chord, but you have your root note, then you have your third and your fifth, and those kind of make together a C chord. And so if I had this section over here, for instance, sing a, a, a C note, and then I had you do an E note, and then you do a, a G note, okay, uh, that would sound different than that, and that would sound different than that. But when we all sing together, the individual notes that God has given us, it would make this beautiful harmony, and then with one voice, we would be praising the God. So what that means is, God does not call us in the church to all look the same, dress the same, vote the same, buy the same appliances from Home Depot, right? Like live in the same neighborhoods, go to the same school. Like he doesn't do that. What he does is he says, take the gifts that you have, okay? Take the way that God has wired you and bring that all together. And when you are unified in Christ with your various different beautiful gifts, it makes amazing music that pleases the Lord. Isn't that amazing? And so our goal in harmony is not unity. The goal of the church to be unified isn't unity in and of itself. The goal of our unity is to point to the greatness of God who takes a very diverse group of people who have almost nothing else in common except Jesus and pulls us together as a family. The goal of our harmony is not just so that we would be nice people. Like Paul does not say here, you know, be unified and have harmony so that the world thinks you're nice. The goal is that the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to unite diverse people as a family, it gets put on full display. That we welcome others not just to be nice, but our ultimate aim is the glory of God. Our harmony bears witness to the world that we exist for a greater purpose, that a greater purpose has bound us together. So that means the chief end. Like, I don't know why you got up this morning and came to church, and maybe you don't know either. <laughs> but it's not just to see your friends. It's not just to sing some songs. It certainly, certainly can't be just to hear me tell you some stuff. I don't know why you're here, but I know this. The chief end of worship gatherings is the glory of God. The chief end of your community group is the glory of God. The chief end of kids' ministry is the glory of God. The chief end of our hospitality and service projects and mission trips and church planting and even elder meetings is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. We exist for a singular reason, to make much of the beauty and the greatness and the perfection of the God to which we have given our lives. Would you, would you join, if you feel like you're part of this thing, would you just join me in the coming weeks in praying that God would make that the atmosphere of this place? That we would welcome the weak, that we who are strong would welcome the weak, those who are wrong about Jesus, those who struggle, those who are immature, those who don't know any better. That, that God would allow us to come alongside, to bear up under their weaknesses in such a way that they would say, surely God is in this place. 
And so as we, as we wrap up, I told you I'd read this quote from Spurgeon, and uh, it's not lengthy, but I want you to just focus on a few things. As you hear it, you will have heard paraphrases of this before, but this is where, this is OG. This is where it comes from. And I want you to, I want you to hear Charles Spurgeon's admonition to believers. He says this, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And everybody said, amen. And I hope that you feel almost glad you haven't. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. In the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would have not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? It is right, if it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not being part of it if you belong to the Lord. Nor need you, uh, nor Need your own faults keep you back for the church is not, listen, the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners. Saved by grace, who though they are saved, are still sinners. In need of all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold of Christ's sheep and the home for Christ's family. Isn't that great? That's what we want to be. That's what we want to be. So as we wrap up, I've got three questions I want to put up on the screens for us, and then we'll move into our time of response. You can write these down as they come. You can take a picture of the screen when they're all up, um, but I would encourage you to take these with you to lunch or community group or whatever this week. First question is this, and I really want you to think genuinely about this. Have I experienced the welcome of Jesus for myself? Do I know what it is to feel forgiven? Do I know what it is, do I know how it feels to be free in Christ? Do I remember that experience of having Jesus say to me, welcome, and me knowing that I belong to his family by grace through faith in Christ? If not, I would love to talk with you about that. I'd love to pray with you. Second, if I feel strong in faith, well, then what keeps me from bearing with those who are weak? Maybe I'm not as strong as I think I am. Maybe I realize I'm actually the weak one who has no tolerance for people who don't think like I think. And I need the strength that only Jesus can provide to me. But if I feel strong, if I feel strong in my faith, if I feel mature, then what keeps me from bearing with those who are weak in faith? And then finally, how does Jesus' finished work, his life, death, resurrection, how does his finished work encourage me and empower me to open up my life for others' good, for the glory of God? If I understand Jesus bore my reproach, right? That he welcomed me 
how does that empower me, encourage me to open up my life and to be a welcomer of others for their good, to build them up for the glory of God? So as we think about our church, man, we, we're just everyday people who love Jesus, like we worship Christ together as a family on the mission that God has given us. We're trying to live into this. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Father, I thank you for these people, and I thank you for your mercy, which is new to us every single morning. What grace. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to understand more about the purpose of the people of God, and I pray that you would make us this welcoming people, that as we remember your welcome to us, as we remember what it is to be brought into your family, that we would extend our arms to welcome others into our families for your glory and for their good, that they might be built up in confidence and faith in Christ. May your kingdom expand, yes, through amazing evangelists, but through willing people who are full of the Spirit, who have open Bibles, open hearts, open tables. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would do this work in us for your glory and our good. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be silent for just a moment.